Welcome to Proscenium, a podcast by Reason Press, where we give a stage to ideas, topics and subjects that challenge and make us think. At Proscenium, we don't want to stay with the comfortable, we want to face the unfamiliar and the uncomfortable, because exposure to new and novel ideas will always result in learning, and learning is something we wholeheartedly encourage. Come, join us on the ride, let's explore together. Hello everybody, it's Matthew and Andrew back for another of our regular episodes. This uh, time we've got a very special guest with us and we intend to put this content out to both our proscenium and our still unbelievable feeds because we think our guest is somebody who has a message that is important enough to spread to as wide an audience as we possibly can. So welcome to our conversation, the, the Reverend Steve Chalk, MBE, founder of the Oasis Trust. It's a genuine pleasure to talk to you, Steve. It's a pleasure to talk to you, it really is. I said in our introduction, but I'll say it for the listeners as well. We got in touch with you specifically because of the conversation that you had on the Gospel of Paul on the Unbelievable show, tail end of uh, last year, 2019. And although it wasn't the content of the, the uh, episodes and the conversation that you had that we wanted to contact you, Andrew pressed me, said that uh, he liked you as a character. He thought that there was a compassion that came across beyond everything else that uh, he, he thought that you were somebody worth contacting to. And Andrew, being over uh, in America, wasn't quite aware of the, the status that, that you hold uh, to some Christians uh, in this country. Uh, when I was a, a younger Christian in my 20s, 20 years ago, 30 years ago even, you were one of the names that would always uh, draw a crowd. And in my 20s, I did attend several talks by yourself uh, uh, in quite a large group. I was talking about it with my wife last night, and I was trying to remember when and where that I've heard <laughs> you talk. And she seemed to think it was spring harvest in the early 90s. Mm. I I couldn't be, be certain where it is that I've... Uh, uh, heard yeah. you talk, but I have heard you talk a couple of times. Thank you. That's um, how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've we've got an anecdote uh, from my wife, which maybe we can throw in, which can just show how old all of us are. Uh, but um, uh, so that's that was um, I was so I was genuinely hesitant uh, about contacting you, but I I did that and I typed a really poorly worded, probably several misspelled words on my phone <laughs> on the contact page on Oasis. And got a lovely contact back uh, from uh, from one of your staff, Judith. Uh, Judith, yeah, a couple yeah, of days later. Crazy, she? yeah. um, she's wonderful. And not only that, that first contact even offered me to come in and see you in London and do a face-to-face -face interview. Such was uh, the pleasantness of the response. Unfortunately, that didn't work out. It, I'm the wrong side of England, and it didn't really work out. So we're doing it by Skype instead. So for everybody who's listening, thank you to to you, to your office, to to Judith specifically, who's answered all of our emails, and everybody in your team for for making this possible. So so that's why we've contacted you. Can we start then just by asking you a little bit about your background? Uh, what brought you into Christianity? Were you always brought up as a Christian? And what brought you into or prompted you to choose to go into ministry? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I grew up in South London. Uh, first of all, let me say that's really kind of you to say all those things. But I grew up in South London where I still live. Um, and I am Anglo-Indian, which I think is quite has been quite defining in terms of my life. So my dad 
uh, had come here from India, from South India, really dark skinned. And uh, this was in the, the yeah, I was born in 1955, I'm 64 years old. Uh, so early 60s, I'm going to school through the 60s and going to school. And I was just known as the half caste. Uh, because England was, uh, London was very white then, and my dad was really dark. He was the darkest skinned man I ever seen, I'd ever seen. And I was much darker than anyone else. London's changed. It's much more multicultural um, than, than it was then. It was just white at that point. And my dad suffered ever such a lot because of the colour of his skin in terms of finding employment or respect or recognition or inclusion. And I think probably all of those things, trying to analyse myself, have, have impacted the way that I have, you know, I developed. My dad was always gracious, never angry. It was, but I think I, I hated watching him discriminate against. Anyway, cutting to, to cutting to a long story short, in my teens, I fell in love with a girl. Uh, who went to the girls' grammar school. We used to run posh schools that you had to pass all sorts of exams to get into. And I went to the dump school where you went if you'd not passed the exams. And and um, so I couldn't get to see her. She was 15, I was 14. I found out that she went to a youth club at a church. So I started going to that youth club on a Friday night at the church, hanging around. Her name was Mary. Her name's still Mary, in fact, <laughs> strangely. And... Um, and uh, what happened was one night at this youth club, um, which was run by a church, as I say, though I, I'm not sure how aware I was of that at the start. She told me she'd never go out with me if I was the last boy on planet Earth. And that night, Ouch. I wonder, I know it was dreadful because these things, I suppose these things always matter, but they mattered a lot when you're 14. Yeah. <laughs> and I wandered home. Um, I wandered home about five minute walk and... Uh, I thought, I'm never, ever, ever, ever going to that place again, to that church again, because that girl who's so beautiful doesn't want anything to do with me, and it's so shameful for me. Um, and then on this little journey home, I thought to myself, well, do you know, even if Mary, Mary Hooper was the name, um, d d doesn't, even if she doesn't want to go out with me, actually, that youth club, they tell me a really good story about my life down there because it was you're made by God, your life's got potential, your life's got purpose, you can achieve all of those things. Whereas at my school, the dump school that I went to, they said, you'll never amount to much. You're not worth putting in for exams. You'll work with your hands, not your head, etc., etc." And I remember on this little walk home making a decision that I believed the church's story, the youth club story, rather than the school story, because it was a better story, a better narrative, as I'd say now about who I was. And so then I decided, OK, I'm going to keep going to that church youth club. If I'm going to keep going there, I best become a Christian because that's what they are. If I um, am going to be a Christian, I best become a church leader because well, what's the point in doing a thing half-heartedly? Which is really strange, isn't it? And <laughs> if I'm going to be a church leader, I'm also, when I grow up, going to set up a school that's worth going to that tells you you're worth something and I'm going to set up some healthcare, a hospital and I'm going to set up a house for kids who've never been told by anyone that they're loved and cared for so I got in my dad had got a job by them working on the railways as a ticket collector my mum was in he was out doing shift work and uh, she said what's your evening been like I didn't tell her that Mary Hooper had told me that 
you know, the bad news. <laughs> but I did say, I've decided to be a Christian, to be a church leader, to start a house, to start a school and start a hospital. And she looked at me. She had no idea what I was talking about. Of course, I had no idea either and said, good idea. My mum had never had the chance of education. And I, and I owe everything to that day, really, because ever since then, um, it's 50 years now, I've known what my purpose in life is about, which I would say is is the greatest gift that anyone can receive. So that's my story. And the rest is just working it out. I don't know what I expected, but I didn't expect that. That's um, quite, I'm, it's quite inspiring, uh, actually. And I, and I mean that genuinely. So basically from your, your mid-teens, you were planted the seed that this is what you wanted to do. How much of yeah. that do you think was a response to the inequalities that you'd seen and experienced? I, th I think a lot of it, because uh, uh, really, uh, 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 unbelievably, I suppose, to use the, you know, the, the, the title of, of, of what you do, this church that I started going to, their gospel, their good news was really about, you know, uh, pray this prayer, follow Jesus, because um, it's worth it as an insurance policy for when you die, you know, pay, uh, pay now and get the, the, the benefits later. So it was all about if you were to die tonight and you hadn't prayed this prayer, where would you be? It wasn't anything. There was no political, um, sociological, societal aspect to it at all. None of it was about engagement in society. There was no social impact of any of this. But so I often ask myself, how, how come I got this? Because I didn't get it from the, the church. They were lovely, but they were kind of otherworldly, if you see what I mean. Um, they were kind, but the gospel was about life after death, not before death. And all I can say, that's why I say it's a bit of self-analysis, that I got this out of watching my dad and his gracious response to the exclusion that he got. When my mum, who was, who's, uh, my mum and dad both died now, but when my mum, who was as white as you can, uh, can get. You know, she's, my mum, uh, she was one of those people, if she went out in the garden for 10 minutes in August, she'd come back red and blotchy. <laughs> my mm. dad was uh, almost black. And, but when she married my dad, half of her family never spoke to her again. Wow. So I think I grew up with that understanding of injustice. And I think that's probably informed me. Steve, was your dad a Christian as well? Uh, well, my mum and dad were nominal Christians. Nominal, um, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So, but the interesting thing is, over the years, they got much more involved with that local church I mean, mm. than they'd ever been before, which is amazing. My mum, in the end, she ran the elderly ladies group and the luncheon club. And, the, you know, so it was a fantastic thing to see them get involved, especially my mum, in a, a very active way. It sounds like... Um given the loss of community because of their marriage, it sounds like that's something she really needed. Yeah, yes. And she was a community maker and incredibly energetic. Um, she died three years back now. But she was, my mum was the, I often say this to people, the most energetic, hardworking person I've ever met in my life. She was like, I don't know what charged her, what powered her, but she would just had so much commitment and energy. And because of my dad, colour, 
and the rejection by the family and the fact that, you know, they, my parents never had a bank account. They never owned a car. We never went on holiday. We always had secondhand clothes, all of that. kind. They lived hand to mouth from week to week. It was a fantastic upbringing, actually. And I think it gave me uh, a lot of skills. You know, it, I'm just so grateful for it and the love that I received. But genuinely, I saw my mum. She just kept on going and never gave up. So I'm, I, I inherited some of these things from her and I'm grateful to her. She sounds like a wonderful person. I'm, uh, I'm sorry that you lost her. Mm. Yeah, but she, she did, did a good life. <laughs> yeah, she did um, get to see you achieve the things that you promised her that you would do, though, didn't she? Yeah, which is really strange. Now, one of the things about my mum, at her funeral, I've got a brother and two sisters, and uh, and and uh, one of my sisters spoke and said exactly. I, I spoke as well, said exactly what I would have said. She said, "My mum." never ever ever talked about her emotions so what happened is that oasis began and oasis the charity that i began to begin to try to fill in some of these things that i, I dreamt of when i was a 14 year old boy and it, it slowly grew and we began acquiring housing and working with homeless people and schools and you know all sorts of other things and and then for a decade, I got involved in television presentations simply because of the work we were doing and worked in this country for BBC TV and radio and, and independent broadcasters as well. And my mum would never, ever, 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 ever talk to me about any of this. You know, she, she never talked about what we did. She talked about us, but not what we did. And anyway, at a funeral, uh, my sister said, oh, you know, my mum was great and never expressed any emotion she just, she'd never say that was a beautiful morning. She'd just say, it's a morning. She'd never say it was a lovely cup of tea. She just said, there's a cup of tea. <laughs> so she, and, and my sister said these things. And I thought, I said to my sister afterwards, you know, you're so right. I don't think my mum ever talked to me about what I actually did. Well, the funny thing is, we then went back to my mum's house because my dad died a few years earlier. And my other sister had, had been sorting through some drawers there. And she said, look, there's this huge, big envelope here, this giant envelope, packet, really. It's got your name on. So you better have it. So I took this packet and I, I didn't open it. I got home and opened the thing. And it had pretty well every press cutting ever hmm. about... <laughs> out of national press and out of the radio times and out of, you know, local press and out of Christian press and articles I've written from magazines. Pretty well ever, every piece of writing about what I'd, do I'd done, ever. Um, and my mum had never talked to me about it. <laughs> it's a really strange thing. Mm. She, she was clearly very proud of you, Steve. In a kind of silent way. I mean, I always knew... My, my parents, I grew up in the kind of home where you never, I can't remember my mum or dad ever saying that they loved me. Never, ever. But did I ever doubt that they loved me? Never. Yeah. They were of their generation. They were brilliant, brilliant, wonderful parents. Presumably they stayed in South London as well. They, they never moved out of London. No, no, ne never moved out of um, South London. In fact, I grew up... Uh, for, Anybody uh, who uh, knows South London, I grew up just under the shadows of the uh, Sellers Park, which is where Crystal Palace Premiership team plays. Uh, and I've been a Palace fan 
all my life. In fact, it was walking up the side of the palace ground, so that's part that I had this little conversation with myself about, hey, which story are you going to believe? I'm going to believe this story. I'm going to do these things when I grow up. And through the years, I've been a palace supporter. And uh, just day before yesterday, earlier this week, we, Oasis, finally did a deal with Palace um, so that all of the kids that come to them into what's called an academy, every premiership football team has an academy. The Crystal Palace Academy, Football in Academy, is it's going to be called Crystal Palace Football in Academy with Oasis. And we're going to become responsible for the tuition and the character development, So, which is has become very much a theme of the education we offer everywhere to work with young people to develop themselves as the best version of themselves. So all our education, we, we run now 52 schools. We've got 30,000 kids in our schools around the UK. But all of our education is character-driven as well as looking at uh, curriculum. So this week's a, a special week. It's been a big week for you. Congratulations. Well, I'm finally working with my football team. <laughs> Excellent. So you've managed to meet all, all the players that you admire yeah yeah it's amazing it's amazing and what what could be better in life than to set up a charity and get to work alongside your football team <laughs> there's Brilliant. nothing else to do <laughs> i must confess um kicking a ball about it hasn't has never really engaged with me so i've been more of a motorsport person I, no. and i've i have done youth work in the in the past and it was always uh an odd answer when a, a child would ask me what's your favorite football team Matthew and I'll go no I don't have one real sports have engines <laughs> and they would look at me with this most odd expression on your face as if they couldn't comprehend what it was that I just said <laughs> and what about you Andrew do you like American football uh, quite a lot actually uh, and one of the teams that is often on the national stage uh, Alabama the University yeah. of Alabama yeah. uh, i grew up in Alabama and that's the team I've uh, I've supported oh I guess since I was old enough to realize that football wasn't actually a ball right <laughs> <laughs> and you don't touch it with your feet either <laughs> but but you know this this isn't this is an artifact of uh of American speech versus English or, or something like that yeah but, yeah uh, well, but well, yes watched, just last Saturday I watched the New England Patriots get knocked out of the playoffs Oh yeah, it's, you know it'll it'll be interesting uh, next season. Will Tom Brady uh, will he play again, or uh, you know, or, yeah. or will he hang up his cleats? And uh, yeah, yeah, I guess we'll uh, <clears throat> I yeah, guess we'll all, see. But you know, yeah, for all ahead. those who know nothing about American football, Tom Brady is the quarterback of the New England Patriots, and he's is he forty five? He's the oldest, one of the oldest guys in the that's, sport, but he's brilliant. That's right. Yeah, he's uh, in fact, I think he's the oldest playing quarterback uh, in history at this point, and no. um, says he'll keep playing until uh, you know until there's some physical reason that he can't. I, yeah, yeah. I think that's probably um, I think that's probably a bad idea because. The physical reason that you can't in American football is always just one hit away, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And for everybody, everybody in the UK who knows nothing about American football, the quarterback's the most important player on the field by a long, long, long way. And, right. and American football is worse than rugby. We hire gargantuan body. human beings to do nothing but 
uh, turn quarterbacks into mincemeat. You know, <laughs> hire the biggest people we can find and, uh, and, and feed them and weight train them. And then you run around the field with, uh, you know, 350 pound guys chasing you just so that they hope they can dislocate your shoulder. And it's, it's quite a, it's a, it's quite a sport. But Brady is, um, he's, he's the epitome of, of what it means to have good genes and good health. And it's quite impressive that he's been able to play yeah, yeah. up to this point. Steve, did I read correctly in your background that your education was through um, Baptist seminary? Yeah, yeah. So, so having decided that I wanted to, when I grew up, I wanted to be a Christian, I wanted to become a church leader, set up a house, set up a school, set up a hospital. I went back to this youth club and I said to the guys who were leading it, who all seemed, you know, they seemed to be, you know, big old men to me, but they were lovely. And I said, so this is, I'm going to be a Christian and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it turned out they were all students at a theological college. <laughs> mm. they, they, of course, I now know they were only 21, 22, 23. But when you're, when you're 14, a 21-year-old looks like they belong to a different age, don't they? Yeah, that's and, right. And they said, well, if you want to do all those things, you know, the best way to do it is to train for the Baptist ministry because it was a Baptist church that the youth club was attached to. Well, of course, mm. I went to the kind of school where you never got a careers lesson and my parents knew nothing about further education at all, higher education. So they said, you should do that. And that's what I did. I left school. I worked in a factory as a laborer in a factory for a few years, a kind of floor sweeper. And saved up some money, worked as a youth worker in my spare time, started a theatre company, began working with homeless people in London on a Friday evening, trying to learn what I could. And then when I was 21, I went to Theological College, a place called Spurgeon's College in South London, and not very far from where I lived. All these guys had come from that college and they recommended to that one and became, a, a, after four years, uh, qualified as a Baptist minister. So that's what I am to this day. How does the UK Baptist tradition differ from, well, the Southern Baptist, as a for instance? I'm sure you're familiar with, with yeah, the Southern yeah. Baptist because of the size of the denomination. Yeah, yeah. How so, do those thoughts differ? Well, of course, within any denomination, there is, in a sense, isn't there, Andrew, a kind of, there's uh, there's there's a more liberal wing and a more conservative wing. Mm. Okay. I think within Southern Baptist circles, the more liberal wing is harder to find. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, yeah. they um, maintain the reins uh, pretty closely. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Any hint of liberalism is uh, yeah. is uh, trounced on pretty quick. But yeah, and um, uh, and actually, in in past years. Um, the, the Southern Baptists invited me out to speak at their national convention because, oh, really? in the, yeah, in this country, the, the first thing I did, you know, after leaving college, I worked for a church for a few years, but then developed some housing. My wife, whose name's Cornelia, she said uh, of, of a hospital, a school and uh, a house for, for, for kids who've got nowhere to go. The house, house is a lot easier than the school or the hospital. And uh, mm -hmm. it was very mm -hmm. hard, but she was right. And we set up a house and then uh, I, et cetera, et cetera. And, and Oasis, the Oasis Trust was born, a charity uh, to run that house and began to grow. And because of that, 
I got opportunities to speak and uh, years and years ago, it must be 25 years ago at least, I was out, um, I was asked out to come and speak at the Southern Baptist Convention and um, I learned then how, um, how conservative they were. They told me off for the Bible I used. It, it, was, it wasn't old enough. <laughs> they wanted to oh, me. which I've, I've got were, to know. Which, which, uh, which translation did you use then? I think I used uh, something which is called the Good News Bible because it's plain English, easy to understand. And they wanted me to use what's called the authorized version that was written in the 1600s. 16, yeah, yeah, 1611, the King yeah, James. Yeah. Uh, and a great I'm deal a, of... Sorry. Oh, I was just, I'm surprised they didn't brand you heretic right then. Well, <laughs> I, yeah, well, I remember they, they took me to task over it. Uh, they really sure. did. I, unbelievable. Right, the translation wars. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I just couldn't believe, here is a group of people who want us to use a version of the Bible that was written 400 years ago, and there's 400 years of the change of use of language that's gone on since then. So, so... Uh, and our translation methods have got better and better and better as we've discovered, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, et cetera, et cetera. There's been so much archaeology and study that's gone on that's informed our better translation of ancient Greek, plus the fact that this was written in the same language as Shakespeare, and this is what we're using. So um, well, I had quite a debate with them. But of course, I mean, they, they have very fundamentalist views around marriage, divorce, uh -huh. women leading, LGBT. Uh, so, so basically, as the year that they wouldn't invite me this year, let's put it that way. <laughs> Some years ago, uh, when I was a youth leader, I um, uh, was having a devotional with some children at the church where I was a youth pastor. And one of the young ladies brought a friend along. These kids were 13, 14, 15, kind of that age range. And I don't remember why today, but uh, we were dealing with Psalm 23 at, at, on that particular evening. I'm guessing there was some tragedy of the time the Gulf War was, uh, and, and the predecessor of the Gulf War were underway. So anyway, we're, we're dealing with Psalm 23. And I asked this young lady who was not part of the youth group, just had come along with, uh, with her friend, uh, to read Psalm 23. And she was handed the AV, the authorized version. Mm. Now, this is, this is the deep south. There, uh, this, this church was as, as deep south as, as you can imagine. So uh, I carry a southern accent, but uh, there are southern accents much deeper than mine. <laughs> this young lady, uh, who was, oh, maybe the, maybe the phrase of the time was unchurched, but she, she said, I don't, I don't know that she'd ever been in a church in her life. So she was, she was going to open the reading of Psalm 23, and, and she did. And of course, the first word is yay in, in the authorized version, but not for this young lady. It was yeah. <laughs> yeah, though I walked through the valley. Of, and, and so, and so the, the point is, uh, I, I think uh, that we really don't use the language of 1611 or, or even, you know, 1601 if you, if you go a few years uh, prior. So we really don't use that language today. And yeah, in, in the South <laughs> is just, uh, just an agreement. Right. It, it's yeah. just, yeah, I agree or, or, or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and that's how she that's how she opened Psalm 23. And there was a, a lesson 
for a, a young youth minister, uh, me, uh, which is the AV probably, uh, you know, it, it certainly has this sort of appeal for people that like flowery language or to give um, uh, some biblical quote gravity. Right. If you if you quote from the King James, there's some gravitas to it. Right. Mm. But uh, you probably shouldn't hand it to your youth because they just don't know what that thing says. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, <laughs> that's the task of the church, isn't it? One of the tasks of the church is the way I see it. I still lead a church today. In fact, within Oasis, there's a whole collection of churches here in the UK. But I lead one in central London is constantly to keep reinterpreting, not lose the truth. A great theologian, um, one of my heroes, he, he, um, he said this in the, uh, in the late 19th century. He says he said that the gospel needs to be keep being reinterpreted because the recipient keeps moving. It needs to be posted to new addresses. And, and I think that's, that's the task of, of the church to without losing the core of this, for me, this really good news that's changed my life, keep understanding it so deeply that we can explain it simply in a new generation. I ought to say, you know, I, I'm, I, my, my task isn't to knock anybody who's a Southern Baptist or any other kind of Baptist or any other kind of Christian. It's because we're all on a continuum, aren't we? And, and so, the, the views that I've come to hold, well, I've grown into those over time. And uh, as life's gone on, I've learned things. And it's so easy to look back on a people who hold a more conservative or a view than I've got on something um, and go, oh, boy. And I forget that that's where I was then. Mm. You know, so the, to walk with grace on the journey, um, extending the grace that we receive to everyone else is is the key i think yeah that's a really good point in my when i was uh, brought well I, I was brought up in the missionary environment in africa and i came to the uk as in my late teens and be, because of that i was very much what andrew was describing i was a young earth creationist and a biblical literalist and that came with a marriage is one man one woman and anything else is a is a sin and a few years later i met the girl who i was eventually going going to marry but she had a very very good friend a male friend and there was a period of time where i felt a little bit of jealousy i thought they've got a very good friendship going on there if i'm ever going to lose her it's going to be to him um but a few years later he confided in her that, that actually he, he was gay Mm. And um, I, in particular, didn't respond well to that. And uh, it's we never saw him again uh, after that. And we there was never any contact from him again. And that was 30 years ago. And we both still feel the pain of the loss of that friendship. And it's all down to a, a poor reaction to somebody in their time of need. When they needed a, that, that gentleman, he needed a friend at that moment in time. And he didn't get it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and uh, tragically, the last time I heard a story like that was earlier today when um, uh, somebody who um, um, actually very influential in, in British society today came in and um, sat in a coffee house that we run in central London, had um, a spot of lunch with me. We talked and talked to each other for a long, long time. 
and he told me that at the age of 21, I think he said 21, yes, it was 21, um, he's a professor in a university in this country with, um, who's very well known. And he said, at the age of 21, I confronted the fact that I was gay and I was a Christian, but I couldn't be gay and a Christian. And so I had to choose whether I was going to be gay or a Christian. And as I knew I was gay all the way through, and there was nothing I could do about that, I chose to be gay and not a Christian. And I gave up my faith. And I asked him why he was here talking to me. And he said, well, 20 years later, I realized that with faith, is important to life and now he says it's another 10 years later than that and i'm beginning to ask what kind of faith is important to life and we talk together but his story is one that i could tell dozens and dozens and dozens of times of people that have been driven from the church and driven from god in fact, end up hating God, blaming God, or feeling that God hates them because of their sexuality. And I know as Oasis has grown over the years and the decades, um, that's, uh, the it, inclusion has become a core theme to us. Not, uh, so LGBT inclusion is core to us. The inclusion of people, regardless of the colour of their skin, uh, their ethnicity, uh, these are key issues for us. Uh, the inclusion of people regardless of their gender identity, all of these have become key issues to us as we've gone because, because the church and society is so full of rejection. Do you think that because of the, the public statements that you've made, or so I'll rephrase that question, um, following the public statements that you made however many years ago that it was, um, I'm... I'm making the assumption, so correct me if I if I'm wrong. I'm making the assumption that you have be you are now seen as as an approachable character for those conversations. So, the people who have been hurt, like in the story I've just told, or the story you've just told, they're you're going to hear proportionally more of those kinds of stories because you're a safe voice than other other people in the church who who don't obviously take the stance that you do. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think it's a really fair comment. Um, I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, because wouldn't it be wonderful if people could be honest about who they were in any church, anywhere? Within our church, which we call Oasis Church in Waterloo, it's in central London, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of people who are L, G, B or T, and so many of their stories are stories of rejection. So I can tell that story over and over again. The story of how somebody confessing to somebody who was leading their church that they thought that they were gay. And then they'd be told, no, you're not gay. You're same sex attracted and you've got to fight against it. You're only attracted to the same sex because something's gone wrong. You're ill, you're sick, um, you're demonized sometimes. And then all sorts of, I don't need to tell you the stories, I guess, of the terrible trauma and threat that people go through, which, which destroys them so often and drives them into depression and anxiety and despair. And in the worst terrible cases, attempts on their lives and even 
uh, tragically successful uh, suicides. Um, how can a suicide be successful? It's a disaster, but it's still an escape from the torment. And um, and just the other day, I was talking to someone else, actually in our coffee uh, house, who whom I know well, and they went through years and years as a as um, as a crystal meth addict, and mm. they were since. They were simply telling me that the reason they became a drug addict was to numb the pain of feeling that God hated them. Ouch. So, yeah, it's incredible. So, so, so people will say, you know, homosexuals, a lot of them are drug addicts. And the truth is, I have met many people uh, who grew up in churches and turned to drugs to numb to take away the pain of living every day with the thought that God hated them. This guy, by the way, told me that for 20 years, he got up every morning, having been brought up in a strict kind of fundamentalist evangelical upbringing. Every morning, he looked in the mirror in the bathroom and said, I hate you. He'd come to hate himself because mm. he believed that God mm. hated him. And he couldn't get, he tried and prayed and tried every way he could not to be gay but he was gay so every morning he would say i hate you and i hope this is the last day of your miserable life isn't um, it a tragedy yeah. that someone's yeah. driven into that kind of drug addiction to take away that kind of um guilt as they they feel um, and anger the anger that they feel from god when god is love and love never fails. You know, one of the things that Matthew and I, one of the things we're trying to do with these conversations is to find places where believers and non-believers can agree. And we both feel that that, that ground is quite broad. Uh, mm. and, and in this space, uh, allowing people to self-identify, uh, allowing them to live the best version of their life, um, not teaching them to engage in self-loathing, or imposing on them the kinds of restrictions that would cause them to want to self-harm. In those ways, I, it, it just seems like we should all be able to agree. And by not allowing the LGBTQI community to self-identify, we take away a critical piece of what it means to even be able to join a community. And oh, absolutely. If you can't be the best version of yourself because the community that you live in can't accept you for who you are, then surely we're doing something wrong, whether we're believers or non-believers. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think that's exactly right. So I think if you can't be yourself, it's not only that you can't be the best version of yourself, you can't be yourself. Right. <laughs> that's a, right. You can't be yourself at all because you're having to lie. And so what often happens, tragically, very, very often, is, is somebody in a community, or it could be a family, where mm -hmm. they can't be out about who they are, has to um, be secret about who they are. Therefore, they end up living a double life. And because they live a double life, they very often try to comply, and then they put a great risk. They put at great risk because instead of entering into a, a stable relationship, they tend to, you know, go for wild one night stands, et cetera, et cetera. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, because they can't be themselves and because they're not encouraged to be themselves and because their relationships aren't honoured and they aren't celebrated and they can't be open uh, about uh, who they are. And um, I think this is a huge problem. In fact, I know it's a huge problem. In the UK, one of the job, my jobs is I'm what's called an HIV commissioner. And mm. uh, there's the HIV commissioner has been set up by the UK government and uh, there's 10 of us and our job, mostly um, doctors with specialism in AIDS and HIV or um, people who are HIV uh, from sports and uh, arts and me. <laughs> and uh, we're working to produce some recommendations for the British government so that we can eradicate HIV new infections by 2030. That's a goal of Um, the UN, by the way, um, that by uh, 2030, there will be no new HIV infection and um, and transmission. And um, uh, London, um, our job is across the UK, but London as a city is well on course for that. But there's a a stubborn four or five percent of transmission that takes place and uh, it keeps taking place. And who are the people most vulnerable? Well, you probably guessed it already. The people most vulnerable are those who are, who are stigmatized because of their sexuality, because that drives them into secret lifestyles and unprotected sex and unthought out loving relationships. So religion, which should be, and faith, which should bring hope, actually brings um despair to so many people at the moment and that's what we've got to change that's why i'm an hiv commissioner i'll tell um oh sorry matthew go ahead um yeah one of the things that i mean andrew and i have been podcasting now for about the last 12 13 months and one of the things that this year has exposed this past year has exposed me to is other atheist podcasts who podcast a bit like that and it's this kind of space is there's quite a dominance of former Christians uh, in in this kind of podcasting space, and some of them and I I hadn't realised it because I'd not been exposed to it, and um, because my exit from from Christianity was um, was was different, but there are I'm quite staggered I've been quite taken back by this here by the number of people whose exit from Christianity is coupled with what is being called by a lot of people religious trauma. And it is, it's about exactly the kind of thing you've just been describing, Steve. People who have been not just hurt, but deeply, severely traumatized by long standing issues around sexuality uh, and other. And it's just this, this um, they, they come away with. It is. It's it's a self-loathing. They've just been drip-fed this uh, this message of it, inadequacy and and what they are, what they can't help being, is is not good enough and to be despised. And they just can't handle this uh, this contradiction because they can't do anything about it. And I've been quite staggered, genuinely so, in the past year by how many people there are in that category. And it's the existence of those kinds of people has just passed me by because my exit from Christianity didn't involve that. And it's been quite a shock to me to, to see those numbers. Yes. 
Absolutely. Um, do you know what is else is there to say? But that it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy, and I think so many people reject God, but the God they reject is not the God of the Bible, not the God of love, not the God of grace, not the God who's on our side, not the God of hope. They reject a fictitious God. They reject a caricature of the God of the Bible, and it's a caricature based on based on anger and based on based on fear based on uh, on on uh, character caricatures that have grown up through the middle ages you know with hellfire and damnation and anger uh, which are just not actually representations of the god revealed in jesus who is love and i quote the apostle paul i've just written a book about him who says love never fails well it either sometimes fails or it never fails. And Paul is clear, love never fails. God is love. You know, as a, I'll, I'll tell a, a, little, a little story of my own Christian walk. Back in the mid nineties, uh, I was working with a, a fellow, we'll call him Jay. Uh, that's, that's not his name and I won't identify him uh, because he could actually be listening and uh, might not appreciate it. So Jay was gay, is gay, and his partner had HIV. And eventually, through a couple of years, uh, Jay's partner died from HIV complications. Now, that's that's less likely the outcome today because we we yeah, have sure. very good treatments for AIDS. But that wasn't true in the well. We were embarking on treatment, but it certainly is not the treatment that we have today. So Jay's partner passed away. And I was um, a, a virulent Christian uh, at the time. <laughs> so, uh, and, and I didn't even like that, that Jay was gay. But we worked together and we built, a, we built a friendship where we even spent time outside of church. And I can tell you that that was monumental for me realizing that, that uh, <laughs> gay people weren't evil, they weren't worthy of the destruction of Romans 127, et cetera, et cetera, right? He was actually a good guy. But the outcome of Jay's story is that the kind of Christianity I practiced caused me not to even be able to engage with him in the moment where he probably needed a friend most in his life because they'd been together for years and years. And Jay stood by his partner until the day he died. And if you embrace the kind of Christianity where your God is that causes you to support that level of hatred and bigotry, you should reconsider because that kind of religion, it doesn't just occur in Christianity. I'm not, this is not an accusation against uh, all of Christianity or this happens in religions around the world. And if your religion causes you to practice hatred, surely whatever sacred book you hold dear says that's not the thing your God really wants. Mm -hmm. And and so it was an awful time. In fact, I have, uh, I have looked for him because he left where we were employed shortly thereafter. And I'm quite sure it's because he didn't get the support out of his community that he needed. I have looked for him for the last... 25 years so that I could apologize. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, that's, yes. 
I think um, too often, uh, it's, uh, it's really honest of you to tell that story, and uh, I think we've all been in places where words that we've spoken in a moment or two, even though perhaps we believe them to be right at, uh, at that time, have a life-lasting impact in somebody else's life. I often think that people who are told by their church or place of worship or in sometimes their you know, their place of employment, etc., that to be gay is an offence. Well, you know, I never said that to him. I just yeah. didn't, I just didn't, didn't engage. Yeah, right. Care. I just yeah. didn't engage over the most important relationship yeah, in yeah. his life. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, absolutely. And and these these things last a long time. I've got I've got a friend who um, who's actually a church leader in the Anglican denomination in the Church mm. of England here, and uh, he's gay and he has a partner. And um, I was asked to take part in um, a service in, in uh, this very large cathedral, actually, in this country. And um, as we were standing waiting to for the service to begin i was going to be speaking at it i asked him how his partner was mm. uh, and 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 he cried and i said well what's wrong and he said no there's nothing wrong he said it's just the fact that you asked me i knew the name of his partner which i've used um, mm. you asked me how he was he said what you don't understand is if I was married to a woman, everybody would always be asking me about my wife and I'd be able to answer. But because I'm gay and I'm in a relationship, lifelong relationship with a man, everyone's silent about it the whole time. So it can become very lonely. Yeah. Um, is, is there something, I'm going to just change tack slightly, but staying on the same subject. Is there something in the language that we use today that needs to change to to help this along steve i'm going to use like for example if i'm i you because i mentioned i liked cars uh, a while ago um years ago i was very involved in the car club we used to do track days and stuff like that and ladies would be uh, in the minority in, in that kind of kind of scene um so you you would end up with a bunch of ch lads looking around uh, somebody's uh, engine and they'd be joking around. And then someone would do something and someone would turn and say, oh, that's a bit gay. Is mm. that kind of phraseology, language, has that had its day? Should we be phasing that or getting rid of that? Because is that part of the problem in that we're exposed to that kind of thing in general language from school? And by the time we get to adults, it's just so deep-seated, these other bigger issues spring from that? Yeah, I, I think that all of this language needs looking at. You don't, I think, want to become the, the language police patrol, et cetera, et cetera. But the language doesn't need looking at. I, 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 you know, we use the term gay throughout this conversation. And I have, as, as you pointed out, probably more gay friends than most, simply because our church has become a sanctuary for people or LGBT plus, and many of them, you know, they refer to themselves happily or all of the time as gay. Uh, some prefer not to, but many will, will joke about the fact that they're gay or they use it just as, uh, as a passing term or they talk about the gays 
you know, I'm a good friend who always talks about the gays. And he says, he is gay. And he says to me, he says, the gays are just like you, Steve, except they're better dressed. That is awesome. You know, we, that is awesome. We, we probably have not progressed far enough as a society until the moment that LGBTQ community members don't have to identify their sure. sexual partners. Just, just like we, uh, well, I'm heterosexual and I won't make a claim for anybody else. But when I talk about my relationships, uh, especially the intimate ones, because I'm heterosexual, yeah. I don't feel the need to say to the people around me, I'm heterosexual. No. And members of the LGBT community don't get that same freedom. The moment they no. talk about their, in, their intimate relationships, they feel compelled to start defending their lives. Yes. And we think, haven't... Sorry, go ahead, Steve. No, I, I agree. Just, Andrew, I agree totally with the point. So, do you know, I don't walk in a room and I don't say, hi, my name's Stephen, I'm heterosexual. Right, <laughs> I, right. You know, and yet for people to identify as gay uh, becomes something they feel they must do. Now, I have to say, I've got loads of um, friends too who are gay and they don't identify that way. In fact, mm -hmm. it, it, as mm -hmm. part of our church, we run an LGBT plus group. We also run a trans group and lots of people come to the group that's for LGBT people and that, and, but there are lots, there are lots of people LGBT who would never go to it. So I could, you know, mm -hmm. I've got real good mm -hmm. friends, you know, I feel real good friends who say, Steve, they say to me, Steve, I don't know why the, our church even runs that group. I wouldn't go to that for all that tea in China. But, and that's because they're in a place with themselves where they are uh -huh. themselves, you know. <laughs> so I don't go to a group for heterosexuals. Right. But then there are others who will say, no, no, I, I'm so hurt. I need I need to work this hurt out. I need to talk right. about it. I need to listen uh, to others talking about it. And uh, in actual right. fact, the guys that um, run this group within the church, guy on our leadership team, his name's Dave. He's he's gay. He never talks about the fact that uh, he's gay. Not really, except when he's within that group, right. because he know he right. he leads that group and he knows that it fulfills a really important function in the lives of some people. And the other thing that happens in line with what you're saying, Andrew is people, you want them to get past it, don't you? So sometimes when I first know someone, they want to tell you they're gay because they just want to check the expression on your face when you say right. it. You right, right. What's the temperature in the room when they say yeah, I'm gay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Am I really acceptable? I've got to tell you who I am from the start because I don't want to commit myself to this community and find out three months down the line that actually I, as I am, I'm not, I can't be myself to go back on what we said before. I'm not right. acceptable right. as I am. So they put it out front for you, but, and they'll read the flash across your eyes at that, at, that, um, at that moment. And so I think that sometimes it's very important for people to tell you who they are in terms of their sexuality or their gender identity in that way. But once they feel comfortable, it becomes a nothing. Right. And, and it's a, it's a tragedy that it was ever uh, a something yeah. to begin with. Something like 10% yeah. uh, of the population mm. are not 
heterosexual. And, and I, you know, who knows if over time that number will be uh, slightly higher, certainly yeah, yeah. as the temperature over LGBT identification, as the temperature drops, more people can identify. Right? Yeah, and, yeah. And I think that what will happen over time, as again, Andrew, I think you're right to say, is this will become a non-issue. Do you know, I think going back a couple of generations, if you were left-handed, uh, that was yeah. a big deal. And it, it was talked about, and in your school, you were encouraged not to be left-handed. Parents yep. tied their child's left hand behind their back so they would learn to write with their right hand. I've even got a book. Well, the cover of a book, not the contents of a book, which was written as a Christian book written on how to how to reverse left handedness in your child, you know. So so wow. people would talk about these things. This was written in the 1920s, 30s. But you still meet people today who said, you know, as a child, I was I was not allowed to write with my left hand. So <laughs> so that the, yeah, the, I'm oh, one of them. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't know you were left-handed. I'm, I'm not. I'm confused. I was oh, we can't be friends anymore. Yeah, you're <laughs> left-handed. <That's... laughs> and the odd thing is, my my mother was left-handed, uh, but I'm I was I'm the firstborn, and it was around about my teens. My my dad confessed to me that. He made a mistake and he I probably should have been left handed. But I kept picking things up as a child with my left hand to do things with. And they would just gently uh, encourage me to do it with my right hand instead. And right. uh, and, and now I'm, I'm right handed for things like writing, uh, but my writing is atrocious. But things <laughs> like drinking or holding a telephone. I have to do it in my left hand. It just doesn't feel comfortable doing it in my right hand. So I've got things like that where I'm, I prefer one hand uh, over the other. Uh, but yeah, my, my dad uh, just confessed to me. As I, and my next brother, the middle brother, he's left-handed and my daughter's left-handed. So clearly that's where I should have been. But um, Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, and so, Matthew, you represent... Uh, uh, a transition point in this journey because if you were 20 years older you'd have been told it would be wrong to be left-handed you're born and you're just or shown how not to be left-handed but I guess with your daughter the fact that she's left-handed is neither one thing or another mm. it's just who she is right? yes yes quite she loves being left-handed yeah. she finds something slightly frustrating but yeah. but she loves it yeah, and I think that's what will happen to uh, over the course of time around the whole LGBT thing. Um, it, it, it's happening around us as we go, isn't it? It's just a tragedy that certain elements, in particularly of the church, but society in general, just stick out for something so hateful as the rejection yeah. of people, which is so bigoted. But you'll often meet a person who say, well, you know, homosexuality is wrong and we don't accept homosexual people who are in relationship in our church. But I'm not homophobic. <laughs> I think you are. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. On the su subject of that and just rewinding uh, slightly, I found myself in a quite a peculiar situation after your appearance on on Unbelievable, Steve, because when the Unbelievable show goes out and then all the listeners go on to onto the Facebook page and talk about it. There's, if it's been a, a Christian and a non-Christian 
uh, on the show, which semi-regularly is when the the listeners go on and make their comments, there's usually a fairly clear dividing line and all the Christians and say, yeah, our man did best. And all uh, the atheists say, no, 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 our, our man did best. And there's, there's usually just a, a, a straight down the middle dividing and, and not a lot of meeting. But then there was a show show with yourself. And it was two Christians asked, um, discussing different um, interpretations of, of Paul. And the episode comes out at the beginning of the weekend, but I generally don't listen to it until my commute uh, the following week. So I'd had a chance to see a lot of comments before I listened to the episode, and there are, the dividing lines were on who was the rudest. It was, <laughs> it was really, really quite strange to see. And there were, the Christians were saying, oh, no, Steve Chalk was so, so rude, constantly uh, interrupting his partner. And then there were loads of atheists saying, no, 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 the other guy was rude, constantly talking over Steve. And I thought, what on earth is going on here? And then I listened to it. And to be honest, I didn't think either of you were rude. I thought it was a very spirited conversation. But I, I didn't come away thinking either of the the, yeah. the interlocutors was, um, was rude. Um, but then as the progressions started, I started seeing comments uh, uh, negative ones uh, about you specifically about you being an apostate and uh, that your 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 stance specifically about subject we've been talking about now about LGBT uh, and uh, the community and you know being prepared to to hold uh, same-sex services uh, and there was quite a lot of unpleasantness is probably the best way I can describe it and I found myself in this position doing my utmost to to defend your character as being compassionate to these people and um and it was it was quite a surreal situation because I was defending a Christian against the kind of comments that I normally get myself and it was it was really really quite a bizarre and I I don't really know how to how to um I'm still processing, actually, because it was a very odd experience uh, because you were being treated by some of the more vocal um, fundamentalist Christians the way I see them treat atheists. And it was quite strange to watch. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure what it means when you're the Christian that is defended by the by the, by the largest number of atheists. <laughs> I think that I think that what happens is I always think for for people with my understanding of who God is, it's a, it's a, it's an unwinnable thing, isn't it? Because I I think I think you get made in the image of your God. <laughs> <laughs> and, so and if there's your a lot God of truth an to angry that. God, well, if if yeah, if if your God is an angry God, and you are the agent of this angry uh, uh, hellfire and damnation God, then you consider it your duty to be angry with people and to put them down and exclude them. And I can never mm. kind of get round to it because I think that God loves us all in spite of ourselves our beliefs and our behaviors god is love and love never ends and and so i always think that this battle between those who are more fundamentalistic and those who are more open is is an unfair one because one side comes out blasting you for being up apostate and the son of satan and the other the other guys go oh yeah yeah okay <laughs> yeah strange matthew thing. Matthew, do you mind if I shift gears um, 
uh, to the light added topic. Yes, yeah, uh, go for it. Okay, because uh, we've we've been on this for about forty minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so now this look, Steve. I, thank you for being willing to talk this through because um, I got a lot out of this. Uh, and and one of the things we want to do is find, like I said, find ways to uh, to have different worldviews achieve common ground. And and I feel like we did a lot of that. So thank you. Yeah. Um, so the last, the, the latest topic that was added in the email chain uh, in the run-up of this show had to do with abortion. Mm. And uh, so to, to say up front, this is not to punch up the conversation or to add any sort of, uh, uh, you know, turmoil. It, it is a thing that in the United States we are dealing with right now. And I live, I still live in the Southeast. So this topic is on the board every day. Uh, you know, Southern states are uh, making new regulations and laws about abortion and Northern states are making, uh, you know, uh, changes going the other direction. And uh, Roe versus Wade is probably going to be uh, challenged before the Supreme Court in the in the not distant future. So that's the that's the groundwork uh, for this and, and nothing else as a probably the closest label that fits me in, in regard to an ethical framework is, is humanism. Um, I don't, I don't really wear that label particularly, but it, it works fine. And I am a proponent of a woman's right to choose um, with, with, with proper gravity about pregnancy, right? So yeah. abortion is not birth control. Um, or, or at least it, it shouldn't be. But with that conversation in mind, and given where you stand on LGBT rights and engagement, I was wondering what your thoughts are on the, I don't, I don't really want to turn this into a binary question about pro-life and pro-choice, but what are your thoughts on, on the issue of choice in regard to pregnancy, I, I, I think, um, and feel free I, not to answer if you don't want to. No, no, no. I, I think I, I, I just interpret Roe versus Wade for UK audience that may not know about it. Roe versus Wade was a, a groundbreaking um, legal case, wasn't it, in the states? I think it was yeah. in the early seventies, seventy-two, seventy-three. That's right. Something like that. That's exactly and, right. Yeah. And it created a situation where the judgment was in that a woman had choice in right. this and that her physical needs, psychological needs, mental health needs were all part of the parcel of thinking through a situation. And, that, and as you, I think, said so well, uh, Andrew, this isn't to uh, neglect the rights of the unborn child or the sanctity of the unborn child it's to it's to balance those with with the um the the needs medical needs psychological needs mental health needs of the mother and so to create choice rather than say abortion is always wrong as in my view tragically sometimes it's still said in other places around the world now that's up for debate again in the states as you've just said but the mm. interesting thing i i want to say andrew if you dig deep into this you'll find back in 1972 1973 the the, the southern baptists were pro-abortion 
Uh, so I remember that having they, having they grown agreed. up in yeah, Alabama. They, yeah. they agreed with the decision. They yeah. They, yeah. Why 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 wouldn't this be the case? And so the kind of hardline anti-abortion stance was not where the Southern Baptists. We talked about Southern Baptists before. These these hardline fundamentalists were to start with. This has grown up the moral right wing, the moral majority movement has grown up since. Mm. It? it has. And and there's, um, boy, there's a lot of room for conversation about how uh, politics and religion have gone about influencing each other to, uh, to create the moral majority. So I, people may not realize that there's a, that that's a real phrase, the, yeah. the moral majority. And, and it's yeah. worth Googling the moral majority, if that phrase doesn't uh, doesn't yeah. mean more than just those two words, right? Yeah. Because we certainly are in a place in the United States where uh, politics and religion have embraced each other in a way that is probably orthogonal to the establishment clause, to to the to our desire to separate church mm-hmm. and state. Yeah. I don't want to turn this into a political. Uh, yeah. uh, to a political podcast, but I do appreciate the fact that you spotted that in regard uh, to what has happened to the Southern Baptist movement, which in the even up into the mid '80s was a much more inclusive group than it is today. And just to uh, to create a little more buzz uh, unintentionally, I think we yeah. I think we sort of lost the thread when yeah. churches started creating security forces. Yeah, yeah. You know, right. <laughs> yeah. When, when you start arming your parishioners, maybe. <laughs> yeah. So okay. yeah, and and it's it yeah, it's a real real good thing. Obviously, in the early seventies, when mm. that, that that judgment was made, thinking good news bring the word evangelical should mean the evac bringer of good news, same word as angel, which mm. is uh, messengers of good news. Um, so they felt compassion for women caught in terrible situations where they'd been raped or trapped in an abusive uh-huh. relationship or, or where, where their health was going to be endangered. So there was a balance always to be sought. And uh, for those who, who will be perhaps listening and go, yeah, but it's, this is, you know, it's, abortion is always wrong. Uh, I, I think I'm, uh, you know, you're American, I'm, I'm a, a, a Brit, but it wasn't until the end of the 1970s, uh, 79, I think, 79, so, uh, even 1980, that the evangelicals really began to organise against abortion. It was a long time after, and it was, it was an issue, and we're getting much too deep for our conversation, to do with segregation and losing the battle on, on, um, on uh, 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 r- racial segregation, wasn't it, Andrew? And, and mm. it was like trying to find some hill to stand on. And that's all very well documented in a thousand history books. Yeah, yeah, it is. Matthew, did you, do you have some thoughts there rather than me just holding the mic? Possibly. I, I wasn't wanting to throw the subject on for another 20 minutes, but um, mm. I, I think I'll summarise my view, which is possibly not going to find much uh, conflict for, from the two of you. I'll I think I'll best. first <laughs> I'll <laughs> first by go up saying is 
a world where there is no abortion at all is a better world. I will say that straight out uh, mm-hmm. at, at the front. The, the question is, how do you achieve that? And I, I don't think a blanket yeah. ban is, is the way yeah. that you, you achieve that. The, the way that you achieve that is by creating a, a, a better, more compassionate society where it is Absolutely. not required. So that, that's my, my solution to that. How, how you achieve that will obviously, is obviously a lot of hard work. It's very easy to make a law that, that outlaws a, a specific action. It's, it's much harder to have a set change in, in society so that the, the need for, the, uh, for abortion is, is removed. But when it comes to actually answering the question of abortion, I'm a sliding scale. Within the first few days, I, I don't really have an issue, but when you get to the last few days, well, I have a much bigger issue there. So my, my level of, uh, of comfort with uh, somebody having abortion, in, my level of discomfort, rather, with somebody having abortion increases the longer the, the pregnancy goes. But I'm, yeah. I don't have the, the knowledge and the, yeah. and the skills to, to make and, the, the call at that point. Yeah, and is the child viable outside the, the womb, right. etc. All all of these things. That's why I say it's a, it's a balance and it's a sensitive balance that must be, as you uh, rightly said in my view, Matthew, driven by love and compassion for the child, for the mother, and uh, uh, you know, rules and regulations. As I've learned, as Oasis has grown, we're many thousands of staff now, and I've learned only too well. You make a, an office handbook. And actually, that handbook always needs to be interpreted with love for that particular uh, uh, situation. Every life mm. matters. Every life is sacred, as I, I said before. It, it's an interesting thing, actually, because I'm a Baptist. Here comes a bit of my Baptist history. When I went to Spurgeon's College, um, in Baptist College in South London, they had a swap with a church in Dallas. It's called First Baptist Church in Dallas, which... Uh, ever anyone who were ever a Southern Baptist knows was like, you know, the unofficial cathedral of all mm. Southern Baptist uh, ness. <laughs> and a guy called Dr. Criswell, W.A., I think his name was, Doc, Dr. W.A. Criswell. He was the senior minister of this giant, 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 very, very conservative church. And each year, um, a star student from our college got chosen to go and spend a year at Dallas. And I've got a friend who's named Steve, and he got that privilege the year, uh, uh, he was a year ahead of me, and he got the privilege. He went to Dallas and he spent a year there with Dr. Criswell and got to meet him once or twice, this vast star, this leader of Southern Baptist, uh, Southern, the Southern Baptist Convention at one stage. And that's where he met his wife, Janet. But Criswell, this is right in those years, because I went to Spurgeon's College at the end of the 1970s. And uh, Criswell, I remember, and actually I've just looked up his quote um, whilst we've been talking. Uh, Criswell said this about um, uh, Roe versus Wade. He he says this quote from him. I always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life separate from its mother that it became an individual person. And then he says, and it's always, therefore, seemed to me that what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed. And there's Dr. Criswell, this this great uh, fundamentalist, and what you're saying, Matthew, and, and what I'm agreeing with uh, 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 very much is, hang on a minute, 
uh, Dr. Chris, or I always feel that it's only after a child is born and had a private and separate life from this mother that it became an individual person. I think, you know, as I've, as you said, Matthew, it depends how late in the pregnancy and how viable the child is, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's more complicated than Dr. Criswell's decision there. But it's funny that his decision was the mother always, mother's needs always triumphs over the needs of the child, the leader of the Southern Baptist Convention. Things change. They, they, they do. Yeah, they do. We were talking right at the beginning, I'm going to shift gear again, about your early uh, years and what drove you into going in, into the ministry. And after you, presumably it was after you, I was going to say qualified, is qualified the right phrase, after you graduated from, from Spurgeon's? Yeah. Well, actually, yeah, qualified's a better phrase than graduated, shall I tell you why? Okay, um, go on then. Well, because I went to a dump school, and because I didn't get enough what were called O-levels then, GCSEs and now, um, then I went to college when I was 21, and then if you didn't have the right number of O-levels and A-levels, you couldn't do a degree. So I never did graduate. Um, instead, I had to do a diploma, which you went to all the same lectures, but you weren't allowed to sit the degree. And so I got a diploma in theology. Um, so I never did graduate, although um, uh, subsequently, as I've got older, various people have given me honorary degrees, all sorts of things. So I've learned this and doctorates even. So I've learned this great lesson in life. If you wait long enough. Um, you get all this stuff and you don't even have to write any essays. It's wonderful. <laughs> Does, do, I've always wondered, do honorary degrees or doctorates give you anything besides uh, a kudos certificate? Uh, well, they give you a certificate and in the case of a doctor, a very funny looking Tudor hat. <laughs> so they give you absolutely nothing. You're the same person you were as you walk out as you were when you walked in. <laughs> right. You, okay. You don't get any special privileges to a co special common room or anything like that. Or... Uh, well, um, uh, do you know, when you go off to uh, one of those funny things, it's often I, I go off to uh, lecture at uh, universities, colleges now, and I speak, get to speak at graduations. And they're, they're, uh, for years they used to say, and we're really pleased to have with us here today, Dr. Chalk. <laughs> I used to say, so I always make a point of saying, no, I'm not. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't even got a degree, but um, but um, at least now they used to want at a at a, at a, um, uh, a graduation. They always want you to wear robe up, as they call it. Right. You know, right. put your yep. robes up. And I used to say, well, I haven't got any robes. And they used to say, well, we'll hire you some if you like. And I used to say, no, it's not that I. I, I can't afford to get these, hire these than myself. So I'm not allowed myself. I'm not allowed to wear them because I don't have a degree. <laughs> so so now I can save them the embarrassment by wearing the stuff that I got when I got these um, <laughs> these honorary titles. <laughs> Brilliant. Apart from that, no, it has no practical significance. <laughs> okay, but you're you're allowed to wear the frock. <laughs> oh yeah. Nice so um, you found yourself in. Kent after you uh, was that your first placement at Tunbridge Baptist Church or had you uh, yeah yeah it was I actually I was really fortunate because when I was at Spurgeon's College uh, before I went to Spurgeon's College I, I applied when I was 20 and they said oh you, you, you're kind of you don't know know anything you you need to you need to go and work in a church for a year before we let you in and we really test you well I'd been working for another church um 
and and running the youth work and that. Anyway, they made me go to another one, and they made me go to this place called Gravesend in yeah, Kent. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. And I'd never lived outside of London, and they sent me there, and they they I met this reverend. He was called the Reverend David Beer, and uh, I met him, and I was so scared of going, and didn't want to be there to start with. But I did this year for them as a you know as a as an intern really. And um, I had a great time there. I really did enjoy it. And then I went off to college for four years. But David, by then, had left Gravesend and he went to Tunbridge in Kent to be the minister there. So he then said to me, after I'd done three years at college, he said, hey, when you get out, why don't you come and work with me again? So I never had to go for any job interviews, et cetera, et cetera, and go on, you know, the, go trundling around lots of churches to see if they, I was, could preach a sermon that was good enough for them. I just went to, uh, I went to Tunbridge. David sat me down with some guys in the church who I guess were the leaders and they had a chat with me and uh, I, in that sense interviewed me and um, gave me the job. And uh, so, so uh, I worked for that church for four years and then I left it with their help and their support to set up Oasis and, um, and life's gone past from there. In fact, I still go back to Tunbridge Baptist Church to preach. Went back okay. a few months ago. Yeah. Deagle, so that, that's presumably then really the, the only church you, you worked at, because then when you set up Oasis, uh, you, that was that. You were, you were working hard at that. Yeah, well, throughout the development of Oasis, I kind of figure, I have this one of my principles, actually. I think you're much better off if you keep your feet on the ground, and you only keep your feet on the ground by doing it at the coalface. Well, that's one of the problems with academia, having just talked about senior common rooms and things like that. And I don't want to make blanket statements, but, you know, the answers that seem obvious while you're sipping tea in a common room or sitting in a library looking at a reference book aren't the same answers as makes mm. sense when you're standing on a uh, uh, in a damp uh, damp council house and mm. you're looking down at a family with no income and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So throughout the growth of Oasis, I volunteered my time in constantly as a leader of a local church. And over the years, I'm not quite sure. Perhaps five churches. I've I've gone along to them and said, look. I know you can't afford a minister. I know, you know, there's only a few of you here in this building. If you'll give Oasis um, some offices, because you've got a lot of space because there's no one here, I'll come be your, your church leader. And that's happened, as I say, I think it's five times overall. And slowly those churches grow. But you're earthed in the community and um, you're having to... Um, sweep up and lead services and make the coffee and you know do all of those things put the chairs away and sit with people and talk with them and that's really great for you and so I am still the leader of um, a local church which is now called Oasis Church Waterloo but it was uh, a big building with 10 people in it seated 400 it had 10 elderly people and it was called Christ Church in Upton Chapel and it was bankrupt and, you know, the lights didn't work or most of them didn't work and the roof leaked and the toilets didn't work and all that kind of thing. And I came in 2003 so, um, to, be the, to the, be the minister of it in my spare time. And I'm still the minister of it, but, but now it has um, quite a large staff. So I still sweep up um, and I still put the chairs away and I still on the preaching rotor and I, et cetera, et cetera. But we've got a great team now. But I, I believe in that principle, incarnation, get down on the ground. You can't lead except by living in the community and feeling the pain of the community. Nobody wants people to come and help them um, 
they, you know, I am one of the, I am one of this community. I feel the pain of everybody else in the community. I know there are not place, place spaces. I know there aren't enough shops that are cheap enough for people to, to um, uh, shop in. I know that there are too many stabbings on the street where we live. That I feel the pain of that. I know that. I worry about it for my kids and my grandchildren now. And that puts you in a better place than being a kind of somebody who, a, a charity leader who pops in to visit things and then goes home. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm just processing, I'm, it sounds like I was being dismissive of what you said, that's, that's, that's not true, I was, uh, mm. I was processing it, acknowledging it, um, and, and trying to smoothly move to what I wanted to, to <laughs> oh, say, sorry, say no, 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 not at all, um, um, you you brought up a memory for me though with what you were saying um some of the most impactful moments in my life were when i was uh, a youth leader uh, so I, I was obviously a christian when i was uh, a youth leader and um one of them was in tunbridge wells because i lived in tunbridge wells for a number of years where i uh, met and married my wife so just up the road from where you were in Tunbridge, mm. uh, we were going to a, an Anglican church at the time. Although, but Tunbridge Baptist did have a reputation as being a a happening church uh, in the area, and I did go there a couple of times. I um, I heard I went there to hear Jay John uh, do a talk once. I I don't think I ever heard you talk there, but it's it's possible that I I did. Mm. I, I but I genuinely don't remember. But the, the story I was going to tell about being being on the the coalface and so we're going back 25 years um uh, now um but i i think about it quite a lot um is um so i was um, my wife and i we were relatively freshly married we were doing um uh crusaders we were helping a crusaders camp uh not camp a youth club runner to um at a YMCA building in, in Tunbridge Wells. And we had loads of kids from the local estates. And one of, one of the, it's, it's, uh, um, it's, it's typical, but it's, it's always the nicest kid. It's such a tragedy. Well, basically to just cut to the chase, this lovely, lovely young girl and her mother were murdered one weekend by the, her, by the mother's boyfriend, you know, and it, the, it was just, the next youth club was obviously within a few days of that and this lovely pleasant young girl wasn't there and it was sorry i'm tearing up even thinking about it mm. you know the, it changed the whole mood of the the club all the kids knew her all mm. mm. the leaders knew her and you know if you're not there out with the people mm. you don't get exposed to this kind of thing no. and more importantly the children there noticed some of them wanted to talk about it. Some of them wanted to know, and it's tough. Uh, it's a tough gig to be there when these young children, who you're not, you're only responsible for for that couple of hours, you know. And it's it's a harsh life, and you know, if you're not going, to, if you're not prepared to put yourself on the line and and be there on the. Sorry, I do apologise. Yeah. No, I think um, what you. Yeah, you're right, Matthew. It's um. It's, um, but somebody, oh, I completely lost what it was what I, what I was trying to say. But yeah, people out there who put themselves out in front for these people, they get exposed to unexpected needs of compassion, and it changes changes your outlook uh, 
on life. You know, I had never in my wildest dreams ever thought that I would have to to process um, a child being murdered. But doing youth work exposed me to that, and I don't wish to be exposed to it again. And not a month yeah. goes by where I don't wonder uh, about that girl. And it was what, 25 years ago. Yeah, I think about her uh, more than I any of the other kids that have um, uh, passed yeah. through the door when I've been a been a youth leader. And it does it. Yeah, it, it teaches you that um, compassion is is king really you you need to love these people you need to love them through everything and re rejecting yeah. people for spurious means doesn't get you yeah. any yeah yeah I, I i think um i think that one of the issues with theology because theology of course is as 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 being my thing but it equally applies to sociology etc is that if the study of theology becomes an academic pursuit that takes place in the rarefied environment of a university and chatter in a common room and isn't connected to um, real life in the toughest of circumstances ongoingly you know I've, I've I, you know I've, I've, I'm not trying to put everyone in the same basket but I've had conversations with people who say well I, I go preach in churches at the weekend or I, I, I was a pastor in the church 20 years ago and 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 I feel for myself unless I'm doing this stuff now the world's changed a lot in 20 years or 10 years the whole environment's changed you know what's happened to our world in the last 20 years is extraordinary isn't it so and unless you're in the battle you can't lead from outside or you'll lead very poorly. And, and, and I think the best theology is written out of an environment and out of pain normally. Um, I, I, the Oasis, work, we work in South Africa. And uh, I recently, recently, a year and a half ago, had the chance of, um, of doing a lecture for the faculty in uh, the university uh, in Pretoria, there, state university uh, in the capital city, uh, to not to the students, not to the undergraduates, but to the faculty. Um, uh, um, the, it was the theology, sociology, ethics, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, departments, and they asked me uh, to address them. And it struck me there that that half of those people had been on Robin Island in prison. With Nelson Mandela and co. Mm. They'd all lived in townships. They'd known the pain of being excluded. And that gave a realism to our conversation that can't be manufactured. You cannot get realism out of a thick theology book. You get realism out of being in the in the scrap. And then your academic thinking needs to be measured against or seen through the lens of that pain and that experience. It needs to be a debate that's ongoing. All theology, like every other science, is a debate, it's ongoing. And, and I, I, you know, I hope that, I, well, I, I try to live out that principle. I'm not claiming anything great for myself, by the way, but I, but I think the principle's important. Yeah, it sounds to me, Steve, that you'd rather be Jesus with skin than the man with a pen. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I, and even in my writing, I do a lot of writing, but um, 
you know, I've, I've just earlier, no, last year now, we just switched years, haven't we? I've written this book we referred to called The Lost Message of Paul. And um, I, it took me three years to write. And people say, why did it take you three years? Well, it took me about a year and a half reading. I researched so much. I read so many scholars. I read source documents, you know, et cetera, et cetera, made notes. And then it took me another year and a half to write the thing simply because I'm writing it in little scraps early in the morning or late at night or on holiday or when I'm in a car and my wife's driving and I kind of say, oh, I can do it. I can do a couple of pages here. <laughs> that kind of thing. And people say to me, does that detract from the quality of the writing? I always say to them, well, up to you to decide that. How can I say? But for me, I think that the engagement in life um, in the struggle of working with, we, we house around 1,500 vulnerable adults uh, in the housing projects around the country. As I said earlier, we've got about 30,000 kids, or just over 30,000 kids in our, our schools. We run endless food banks and debt advice centres and et cetera, et cetera, all sorts of things, actually. We've just, in this last year, been asked to take on a youth prison by the UK government, notorious youth jail. And we're taking on that. So, you you know, you sit and talk to kids who've, who've murdered people and you find out why and how. And all of this is pretty good for your theology, I think. I do want to underline that there have been some important points of agreement here that I wish people could could take away regardless of the worldview. We were able to sensibly talk about how to treat not just the people who are in the in-crowd, but the people who aren't in the in-crowd. We were able to talk without any heat very openly about, about abortion. And while it's probably the case that we wouldn't agree on a particular outcome for every possible instance that could face the three of us, we were able to talk about really important issues without the, without the sort of vitriol that I think is plaguing large conversations, the big conversations, both in the UK and in the US. And so if listeners could take anything away, it wouldn't be that we have to agree, but it would be that we have to be able to respect each other enough to hear each other out. Mm. Yeah. I, the way I think about uh, that, Andrew, is I, I think, why am I loved by God, the God of love? Is it because of my opinions? Is it because of my stances? Is it because of my beliefs? No, I think it's in spite of my opinions and in spite of my beliefs as much as it is because of them and in spite of the stances I've taken, in spite of my actions. I think God's love is grace, unconditional for us all. And, then, uh, and, and therefore, we're called to embrace one another in that same way because we're, uh, we're all on journeys, we're all changing. And it leads me to say a second thing, every view that any of us hold is provisional, isn't it? Even if we say it's final, it's never final. It's provisional because we're growing each day. Have I grown in the last five years? Um, yeah. Do I hope to grow in the five years coming? Do I hope to learn? Yeah. Well, that means my understanding will grow and develop and deepen and change. And once we understand ourselves as on that, to use your expression, Matthew, continuum, 
and understand others are on that continuum and understand that the essence of life is about love, then it, 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 it changes everything. So it's not a case of whether we agree. It's a case of can we have a conversation and can I come to this conversation in order to listen, not just to prepare my next argument while you're speaking? <laughs> and I think that's an important way of, of doing life. Um, and, and, and the last thing I'd say is, you know, what, what's Jesus about? I am a follower of Jesus. Why should you be a follower of Jesus? Well, my answer to that is uh, he made the most sense that anyone's ever made. The funny thing about me is um, I've served on church committees, little local church committees and national committees and government committees, local government, national government. And um, uh, for um, eight years, I was a special advisor to the United Nations around uh, on the issue of human trafficking. So I've sat on United Nations committees in New York, in Manhattan, in Geneva, in Vienna, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and here's the funny thing. Um, in all of those, on all of those situations, I've realized it's really just the same. There's nothing more, there's nothing greater about sitting on a UN committee is sitting on a local church organizing committee for the, for the summer fair. It's all about, can we hear one another and listen to one another and work together? And if we can, we can get somewhere. Um, I'm a follower of Jesus, as I said, and I, what did Jesus come to do? He came to say to us, love one another, love one another by this people will know you're my followers. It's not about what you believe, it's about what you do. By this shall you be known. So Jesus came to teach us a way of living and a way of doing. And I think in all the committees I've ever been involved in at any level, right up to those kind of intergovernmental global committees, I've never heard or come across a philosophy that makes more sense than love one another love one another, lay down your lives for one another, put the other first, which is why I'm a follower of Jesus. I just think it's about being the best kind of human being you can be. I think Jesus was far less religious than he's made out to be. He was far less stained glass than he's made out to be. He loved drinking and eating and laughing and joking with people. And he did provocative things that upset religious people. It was only ever the religious people that were upset with him, actually, when you stop to think about it. And it was only ever the That's religious leaders that he was angry with. Jesus' anger is, is, is always saved for those who are religious leaders. Why? Not because they're religious leaders, but because they judge others. And so I think Jesus just came to show us a great way of being a human being. That's it. Uh, thank you. That was what I think you just answered one of the questions I'd been given to ask you, which was uh, a Christian wanted me to ask you, why should I follow Jesus? And I think you've uh, just answered that one very well. A, a question I wanted to ask about the practicalities of uh, Oasis that you do, and you mentioned some of the Oasis workers in uh, education. Do you have not necessarily atheists, but people who would call themselves not a Christian, uh, helping you out and, and working with you in those? And do you, presumably those that, if there are that do, that you work together well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Oasis probably employs more Muslims than Christians uh, in the UK. 
uh, let alone anywhere anywhere else. We work uh, we we work with Christians, Muslims, Hindus, <laughs> etc., Sikhs, uh, atheists, humanists, etc., etc. Oasis is a Christian foundation, which means it's utterly inclusive. By the way, all the schools we run, they're not selective. They're not those kind of Christian schools, faith schools, as they get called, where. You know, you can come to this school as long as your parents go to our church. We run community schools there for everyone. As I always say, it's a bit cheeky, but it get, get, gets people talking and thinking. You either run a school for Christians or you run a Christian school, but you can't do both at the same time because to live Christ's way is to include everyone. Jesus says to the Roman who's serving lots of gods or worshipping lots of gods, following lots of gods, none of whom is Yahweh, the God of the Jews, he says, I've not found seen faith in the whole of Israel like you've got, faithfulness like you've got. So Oasis, our, our logo, actually, if you look at it on our website, the O of Oasis is a messy O, it's squiggly and it's many stranded. And we say it's our O of inclusion, our inclusive O, it's our messy O, because inclusion's always messy, but it's strong and many stranded because it's like that. So, um, I'm glad um, you explained that. I had noticed that in the past and I had yeah. uh, wondered what it was. So thank yeah. you for explaining that. I like that. Yeah. So that's that's us. Everybody's in. Excellent. Um, I have a I think you've already answered this question as well, but I'll throw it in because it, it's from the most important person in my life. Obviously, my my wife uh, after my daughter. Oh, no. Which one do I put first? Um, <laughs> anyway, my I mentioned that I met my wife in Tunbridge Wells. She went to school in Tunbridge Wells, a, a grammar school, and she tells me that she actually remembers you doing assemblies occasionally when, when she was at school. So the question she wanted me to ask you uh, was, when you were that, that fresh-faced uh, young pastor uh, doing those school assemblies working there, what vision did you have for 30 years' time, and how does the, the present differ? Now, given from what you've said, you clearly had the vision of, what was to yeah. become Oasis, uh, it was formulating in your mind. So I'm assuming, I'm going to guess that the answer is not very different, but I'd like to, to hear what you say about that. Yeah, yeah, well, the thing I think is that, you know, I knew that when I grew up kind of thing, I wanted to start a hospital, a hospital and a school and be a church leader. And by the time I was working in Tunbridge, therefore speaking at your wife's assemblies in a school, I was working as a, a church leader and I knew that I had to leave that church sometime to start a house uh, but I hadn't got round to it and didn't really know how to do it. But I had no idea. I, my idea then was, you know, we'd start a house for, for kids who, um, young adults who always been rejected. And we'd live in that house. And when, when I started Oasis, I thought Oasis was the hostel. And uh, we, I didn't quite know how we'd start a school or a hospital. I guess we would someday. But I hadn't really figured out how but what i've learned about life is the more the more you push the boat out the more you take a risk the the further you get and then you learn things so did i know that you know we'd employ uh, 5000 people or however oh, many it is we we employ around 5000 people in the uk did i know any of the, the things about the scale of oasis did i know that the government would give to us a prison um, to work with young people who, so that we can give them some wholeness and some hope so that they don't reoffend. No, I didn't know any of those things. And I didn't set out to do those things. So I think an important principle is to do the thing that you've been given well in front of you, to throw yourselves utterly into that thing 
And it's amazing how it leads on to another thing and another opportunity and another opportunity. So I guess I go ending, I suppose, where I started when I was a kid wandering up the side of Palace Football Ground. And I think to myself, I want to start a house and I want to start school. and I want to start a hospital and I want to be a church leader. But that gives me my direction, my true north, if you like. Um, I know my moral compass. I know where I'm going, what to do with my life. I'm not saying I've done the best things with my life every day, but I've always known when I've not been doing them because I know my direction. But what that actually meant and how it would work out and what the size of it and the scale of it would be or not, um, I didn't know. You just get on and do the thing. And um, people say to me, um, you know, staff and, and others say to me, whoa, this is huge now, all these staff and all these schools and all this, this, that and everything else. Did you know that it would be this big? And the truth is, I don't know if Oasis is big or Oasis is small. What will it be in 10 years' time? Well, what are the opportunities? that? So, so I may look back in 10 years' time and go, wow, that really grew big. Or I may look back if I get the opportunity of another 10 years and go, do you remember 2020? Oh, boy, wasn't, weren't we tiddly then? Now look at what we've been able to achieve. Um, just throw yourself at it every day. And I guess that's what uh, Matthew and Andrew, you're doing with this podcast. Who knows what it will become over time? Hopefully full of conversations like this, that, that would be what, what, what I would want. And I must say, as a casual observation, comparing listening to you now with when I was uh, a 20-something, or well, be, before a 20-something possibly, well, 20-ish, which was 30 years ago now, and, and hearing you, you, you talk, your your enthusiasm and your effervescence is just the same as I remember it. <laughs> oh, stupidity. <laughs> yeah. I, I would never use you so much. Before I get on to the final question, Andrew, have you got any questions? Or Steve, is there anything you'd really like to ask us? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm enjoying the conversation, but don't want to take away from uh, this this. Um, this opportunity to you, for you to question me. You should grill me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm uh, I'm square for the next question. Uh, okay, right. One of my because of my background and, and um, my my past life as Christian, my Facebook friends list is full of quite a lot of Christians, and there's several um, vicars and uh, church pastors in there as well and one of the vicars did say when i posted that i was going to be talking to you today did say be gentle with them matthew because <laughs> um, I, I will confess occasionally I, I am a little bit um let's say i don't hold back sometimes in, in criticism of things i i don't like on my social media and and sometimes uh, my impression of religion has been the subject uh, uh, of that. And at least one person that I was uh, once friends with has blocked me uh, on social media as a result of that, I suspect as a result of that, which is an unfortunate. Um, so maybe I need to dial it back a bit. Uh, that's probably the lesson there. Anyway, so the, the last question which Andrew and I like to ask our Christian uh, guests is, do you have a favourite Bible character? What are they? And tell us about them, please. Well, funny thing you should say that. So I'll, I'll give you what probably is a very unusual answer. And I think uh, one of my favourite Bible characters is Judas. <laughs> I don't suppose many people say that. No, I often. didn't see that one. I was wondering maybe you would say you, what someone you've written a book about. 
don't know, is Judas, because I think Judas is really misunderstood uh, by the church. I honestly do. I, I think the church is very confused about Judas. In fact, if you want to know about Judas, probably a Christian is the wrong, wrong person to ask, because we've got these two views about Judas, haven't we? One is that he's this real, real baddie who deliberately wants Jesus dead. He hates Jesus and he follows him for three years. And then when he gets the chance, you know, he swaps him for 30 pieces of silver. He just sells. Uh, he sells his savior and laughs as he gets crucified because, you know, he's he's that's who he is, the betrayer. And the other one is where people go, well, of course, if if Jesus had to die on the cross for our sins and if Jesus hadn't died on the cross for our sins, uh, we couldn't be forgiven. I'm sure you've heard people say that kind of thing. Well, if that is the case, then Judas is a saint, isn't he? Because Jesus wouldn't have died on the cross unless Jesus had betrayed him. So Jesus gets, uh, Judas gets this real bad rap under that understanding. By the way, that's not my understanding of Judas, but because he's, you know, he's been cursed through all history, and yet he... It's because of his action and the price he pays being cursed that Jesus dies on the cross and, and Christians say that they're forgiven. Um, however, I think that's entirely the wrong understanding of Judas. And I think we've all got a lot more Judas in us than um, we care to acknowledge. I think that Jesus, Judas loved Jesus. I think that's why he followed him for three years. I think that's why he's one of the 12. I think he shared a lot in common with the other disciples. They didn't want Jesus to die. They didn't want him to face a cross. They wanted him to live because Jesus was the Messiah, as they discovered. In the story where Jesus asked his disciples, who do you think I am? Peter, who was always never short of a word or two, answers, you're the Messiah. Jesus says, you're right. And I've got to suffer and I've got to die. And Peter says, no, no, you can't die. You're the Messiah. You're supposed to kill people, not be killed. You've got to liberate Israel from these Romans. And, I, and we know that that was that was the understanding of the disciples as a group. In fact, even after his resurrection in the book of Acts, uh, we read about the disciples saying, so, right, Jesus, now are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They're still looking for him to throw the Romans out by force. And I think that Judas had just fallen for the same mistake that the other disciples fell from. For They misunderstood Jesus. They thought he was the king of power and the king of the sword. They believed in vengeance. But Jesus is about love. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. And I think that's what the cross is about. It's the greatest demonstration of Jesus' philosophy of life in action. But as Jesus, as Judas doesn't understand that, um, here comes G Jesus into Jerusalem towards the end of his life. And he's, he goes into the temple and he throws out the people who are just ripping the people off for money and keeping, uh, keeping the children and the lame out of the temple and he turns their tables upside down and the lame and the blind and the children rush in and the people are liberated in that way. And Judas thinks at last he's found the courage to take on the Romans. And then Jesus fails to do it. Now, I think like um, the rest of the disciples, he believed that he simply believed that Jesus was the Messiah and the Messiah couldn't die. 
So I think he just goes to the priest to sell Jesus, trying to force Jesus' hand because he misunderstands Jesus' message like the rest of them do. But he takes it further and he thinks, if I sell Jesus, he can't die. So we take them on and at last the kingdom will come, the kingdom of Israel. And then, of course, why do I think this interpretation is right? Because when Judas realizes that Jesus isn't going to start a revolution as the guards try to take him on, Jesus, Judas goes to the priests and he throws back the 30 pieces of silver and he tries to undo the deal. And he tries to set Jesus free. Why? Because he loves him. And then they throw the 30 pieces, of, the priests throw the silver on the floor and say, the deal's the deal, you can't undo it. And Matthew tells us that he went outside and he hanged himself. Why did he hang himself if he was pleased Jesus was dying? Because he realized in that moment that he really had misunderstood Jesus and the kingdom doesn't come through force. It comes through love and sacrifice. That's why I think he killed himself, because he couldn't bear what had happened. Even when Jesus rises from the dead, as I've already said, the other disciples are saying, are you going to do it now, Jesus? At this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They still think that Jesus is a warrior. I think Judas misunderstood Jesus. And I think that I too often misunderstand Jesus and I struggle to be his follower and I struggle to go the extra mile and turn the other cheek and choose the way of grace and not the way of revenge and not the way to build the story up to favor me and not uh, you know uh, rather than put the other person down um etc etc so I think there's a great lesson for me at least in Judas's life I think he was a good man who loved Jesus but betrayed him through not listening closely enough to, to his example. And I think all religious leaders, and I'm one of those, are forever in that position if we're not careful. It's a huge responsibility uh, to claim to teach people the way of Jesus. Thank you, Steve. That's a, a genuinely interesting perspective. Yeah, somebody who went, went misguided rather than treacherous yeah because he was he, he had the wrong view of god in the end he thought god was nationalistic he thought jesus the the warrior of god was on the side of the jews and against the romans he thought that he you know so he believed in the sword uh, we all believe in the sword we still get bishops to bless battleships and aircraft carriers we still declare war in the name of our God. And it was Judas's misunderstanding that believed he could push Jesus and Jesus would take up the sword. And I think we still form Jesus in our image instead of listening to him. We make the same mistake. Thank you. I'm, I'm beginning to wish that I had been able to come down into London and meet you as the original invitation, uh, Steve. I'm sure it would have been an absolute blast to, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, sitting across the table from you with a with a microphone and a uh, and a nice cup of coffee or or whatever, uh, yeah. or a so nice glass uh, of wine, that or, or or that I was, I didn't want to throw that that in, <laughs> um, but there we go. I've I've actually just had a gin and tonic delivered to me in the last ten minutes, so uh, 
I, I'm going to appreciate that. Thank you. And I, I mean that out of all sincerity. Thank you for your for your time uh, this afternoon, Steve. Re really appreciate it. I've really enjoyed the last two hours. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to talk with you both. Yeah. You too, Steve. I will say that this conversation lived up to exactly what I thought it would be when I uh, when I heard you un unbelievable. And we are just a, a small fish in a in an ocean of podcasts. And uh, so, thank you for being willing to come on and and chat with us. Uh, it's, it's been, been a pleasure. Joy. It's been a joy. Thank you. Our guests don't get anything out of this except the joy of talking to uh, Matthew and I, and that's uh, not necessarily a joy for some people. <laughs> so, so I, I do want to give you the space to talk about the projects that are important to you right now. Do you have upcoming books? Is there something that Oasis is doing that needs to be brought to the public's attention? Is there a message that you want to send out something that's that's happening you know where oasis is evolving and, and you want to bring attention to it anything that anything that you want to say about the work that you're doing i want to give you the space to do that well that's very kind i, I I'd, I'd simply say this the book that i just uh, completed which is published in the states as well as in the uk here the lost message of paul the apostle paul um uh, explores this generous theology that I've been talking about, and it's my understanding of Paul. I think that Paul's got a rough rap through history. You know, people like Jesus, don't they? Think, well, he's a nice guy, he did kind things. But Paul, you know, he was anti-women, anti-marriage, anti-divorce, anti-L, anti-G, anti-B, and anti-T, um, anti uh anti-remarriage, uh, 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 anti anti-this, <laughs> you know, a, a, a real disciplinarian. And I think that we've painted the wrong picture of Paul altogether. Mm. And did you know that Paul never, ever, ever mentions the word hell in any of his teaching once? If he knew the word, we don't know that he knew it because he never says it. And yet we built up this impression of this angry apostle who was, who was, who was threatening people with hell and damnation and fear. Uh, but I think he was very, very different to that. And I think that we read Paul through the wrong lenses. So that, that book, I hope, is a good continuation of what we've been talking about here. I'd simply ask uh, you to, you, you can find about our Oasis on oasisuk.org and, and that will lead you on to some of our websites. We've got loads of websites for our schools and our housing, et cetera, et cetera, our healthcare. Uh, so find out more about us and perhaps you'd even like to come and work with us. <laughs> In the show notes, we will leave an Amazon link to your book and yeah. we'll leave a link to uh, oasisuk.org and I'll say that in the run-up to the show uh, I perused the okay uh, the Oasis UK site myself and I was impressed with the amount of of work that you do and not the things that you say and yeah. uh, so I thought it looked to me like Oasis is a good result for the people in the community and uh, and so I appreciated uh, all of the work that you do and uh, and the way it's carried out. Thank you, Andrew. That's very kind of you. <laughs> God bless you. Thank you, Steve. See you next time. Bye, all. Goodbye. You have been listening to a podcast by Reason Press. 
get in touch, email reasonpress at gmail.com or see our website reasonpress.net where you'll also find our book Still Unbelievable. We welcome more feedback and you might even end up on an episode. Our theme music was written for us by Holly. You can hear more of her music at soundcloud.com slash hollybishop. You can support us by buying some of Holly's music and telling her we sent you.